If you have your Bibles and you are able and willing to stand for more than five or six minutes, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from Psalm 18. Kids, you are dismissed to children's church, too. Psalm chapter 18. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth light and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath Of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp, the Lord my God, Lightens my darkness. 
For by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle." You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. Me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing before me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king. Steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I've titled today's message, When One Plus Two Equals Eighteen. This week, I had the privilege of being at Camp Crossroads. We had a fun time. Pastor Allen and Jen did a phenomenal job. All of our volunteers, a huge thanks to you. We had a wonderful time together with But the most interesting thing I learned at Camp Crossroads happened on Wednesday when I went around with the shepherds, the fifth graders. And the fifth graders taught me something really fascinating I never knew. In fact, it was Joel Probst over there who taught me that two plus two doesn't always equal four. Who knew? I was, my mind was blown. The universe was bending in the room, and I was like, what is happening? Like, this new math, what are they teaching you? So if you want to know how two plus two doesn't always equal four, I got Joel's permission, and you can go talk to Joel after the service, and he will enlighten you on that. But you know what I was thinking along the way is like, okay, well, in the spirit of like this new math that's out there, let's do some fun math and say, what happens when you add one and two? 
Well, I think you get 18. And what I mean by that is that Psalms 1 and 2, remember as we introduced the book of Psalms, we said they serve as a faithful gatekeeper to the rest of the Psalms. In fact, some commentators believe that the editors of the Psalms who kind of put the hymnal together, if you will, place them at the beginning, side by side, and without ascription. There is no title to Psalm 1 or 2. So there's no specific setting. They are a generalized setting and, and theme uh, uh, setting for the rest of the Psalter. And what I'm arguing is that if you broke apart Psalms 1 and 2, and I'm going to try and demonstrate this thesis today, if you break apart the constituent themes found in Psalms 1 and Psalms 2, let's say you had six of them, and you took them like colors. This is a palette, like an artist's palette. Are you picturing that with me? And you made one color, one theme, and another color of paint is another theme, And there are six colors on this board that David, as he is painting Psalm 18, if you will, is dipping his brush in one of those themes and painting in broad strokes. Cleaning the brush, grabbing a little more, and painting in these broad strokes. And so I'm not presuming to believe that David had Psalm 1 and 2 open like he was making a greatest hits remix of, you know, the best songs and doing a mashup song of Psalm 18. But what I am saying is that these themes were on David's heart. He embodied the righteous man of Psalm 1 and the anointed king of Psalm 2, and they overflowed into Psalm 18. So let's see if you see what I'm seeing together, okay? As I studied for this text, the more and more I looked at it, the more and more I was starting to outline it, the more I believed Every part of this text, in broad strokes, can be tied back to and compared to Psalms 1 and 2. So you might, if you want, have your Bible open to Psalm 1 and 2, and then put your finger in Psalm 18, or grab the Pew Bible and open it up. And I have to tell you, uh, I'm sorry, but neither the Pew Bible nor your Bible will probably be what I am quoting, because... Psalms 1 and 2 are in my heart in the NIV 84. And so as I share today, just see the theme, see the general picture as we compare notes between Psalms 1 and 2 and Psalm 18. First of all, I see Psalm 211 as the first theme of David's brushstrokes. And we find that in the first part of Psalm 18. Okay, so Psalm 2.11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I think he paints the title and the first three verses in that broad theme, that color. And so I say that God's servant king serves him with fear and rejoices with trembling. Look with me at the title, and let me remind you that the titles of the Psalms are in the original text. They are part of the original. And so this title is Scripture. In fact, it's Scripture twice. This title is found in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 9, where you will find that Psalm 18 is shared almost word-for-word verbatim at the end of that historical book in 2 Samuel 22. And 2 Samuel 22, 1 says essentially what the title says. A Psalm of David, 
the servant of the Lord. And he addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so in 2 Samuel 22, what's happening is at the end of basically the history of King David, from 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Samuel, you have this summary song that maybe David sang when he defeated Saul in the first part of 1 Samuel. You remember when he was hiding in the, in the wilderness, he was running from Saul, and he was uh, trying not to touch the Lord's anointed. That part of the history, David finally, when he ascended to the throne, maybe he sang this song. Maybe he penned some of these lyrics. And then in the latter part of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, all the way up to 2 Samuel chapter 8, that lists the nations that David conquers as king. He's established now on the throne, and and he's expanding the kingdom of Israel, defeating Philistines and Moabites and Edomites. And the nations have bowed down before him, so to speak. And he sings this song to God. And then towards the end of David's life, you remember, uh, he faced the rebellion of Absalom. Absalom was an enemy from within. Uh, Psalm chapter 3, we've studied that psalm. The the title of that says, uh, a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. And he said, Lord, how many are my foes? How many arise up against me? Many are saying of me, God won't deliver him. But God was his help then. And when he defeated Absalom's rebellion... He's saying something like this. When, when David saw victory from God, this was his theme song. And so at the end of Psalm, excuse me, at the end of 2 Samuel, you have this psalm at the end of the history of David's life. So perhaps it was a song he sang throughout his life or one he composed more in his latter generations. But David, as he begins the song, he says this. This is the psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Imagine that with me for a moment. This guy has defeated the tens of thousands of armies, not the thousands that Saul defeated. He's ascended to the throne of Israel. He has conquered the nations and done what has been promised for centuries that would happen in Israel. And he has established peace in his kingdom. He's defeated the rebellion. And he doesn't begin the psalm, a psalm of David, the mighty king of all Israel. No. A psalm of David, a servant of the Lord. David served the Lord with fear, and he rejoiced with trembling. He he loves the Lord. He rejoices in him. He he worships him at the beginning of the song. The word in the beginning of verse 1, I love you, is an impulsive love. It's It's a love with all his heart, compassionate, with everything in his being. He loves Yahweh. I love you, Lord. I worship you. You're my shield. You're my strength. You're my stronghold. You're my buckler. You're the horn of my salvation. You've been the one who has brought about these victories every single time. I give you the glory. I am your servant. He says, I call to you. I call to the Lord because he's worthy. He is worthy to be praised. And so, God's servant king, he serves the Lord with fear and rejoices with trembling. Then the the next thing that I see is he goes on to say that as he calls to the Lord, he's saved from his enemies. Well, verses 4 and 5 talk about how he felt when those enemies surrounded him. The, The cords of death entangling him. 
The torrents of destruction overwhelming him. He felt like he was about to die because, dip your brush in the water, grab Psalm 2-2 and paint this brushstroke. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's what Psalm 2-2 says. Psalm 2-2 predicts that God's anointed king the one who would rule his people will be opposed by nations. He will be opposed by kings, and he will be opposed by the elite of the day who will rise up against the anointed king and surround him. And that's how David feels in verses 4 and 5. I'm surrounded. In other Psalms, he talks about being surrounded by wild beasts like they're going to tear him apart. He is on the brink of death because the Lord's anointed king is surrounded by enemies. So we say... Number two, the raging nations, kings, and rulers have conspired together and set themselves against the anointed one of Israel. David experienced this in his life. Uprisings, rebellions, kings, and nations would try to overthrow the one who God had anointed way back in 1 Samuel 16. He was going to be king, and he experienced the opposition like this, and so much so that he was at the brink of death. Well, what does he do? Verse 6, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help, and notice where the answer comes from, from his temple. Temple had not yet been built. Remember, we studied this a couple psalms ago. I can't remember where. The Psalms, speaking of the temple of the Lord before the temple is built, all the heavens belong to him. Wherever you go in this world, you are under the dominion of the Lord. And so David says, from on high, from from the temple, he heard me and he listened to my cry. And so I think David dipped back in and reached for Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Psalm 2, 4 through 7, and he paints this broad brushstroke of verses 6 through 19 of Psalm 18. And that is number 3. The one who is enthroned in heaven laughs at, rebukes, and wrathfully terrifies the enemies of God's anointed one, who is the Son in whom he delights. The one enthroned in heaven laughs at, rebukes, and wrathfully terrifies the enemies of God's anointed one, who is the Son in whom he delights. So, this is Psalm 2, verses 4 through 7. It reads like this. Um, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That is the nations that are against the Lord and his anointed one. He rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying this. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then the one installed says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. And today I have begotten you, or I have become your father. Later in the New Testament at Jesus' baptism, you'll recall that that phrase, you are my son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased finally and fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the king of Israel, and specifically King David, was given the title Son of God. He was God's king, God's anointed, the son installed in Zion as king over Israel. 
And what we find in this section of Psalm 2 is, I think, seen in broad strokes from verse 6 all the way through 19. Remember, from heaven, the Lord laughs and he rebukes and he scoffs at those who try and overthrow the king. He just rebukes them in in his anger and his wrath. And he speaks to them terrifying things. So read now with that backdrop of Psalm 2, read verses 6 through 19 in a, a, a skim fashion with me. For example, the earth reels and rocks and the foundations, the mountains are trembling. We see smoke coming out of God's nostrils, devouring fire. Fire. We have coals and flames and the heavens are changing and there's darkness and cherubim and There's a canopy over him with dark water and brightness and coals flashing, lightnings flashing down. And then in verse 13, the Lord, he utters his voice and it sounds like thunder. This is a terrifying picture. You you don't mess with God's anointed king. He'll smite you. And when he comes in wrath and he speaks, it's like thunder. This is another example of, uh, of uh, theophany, of, of language that just manifests itself and describes when God appears in wrath what he looks like. We see it at Sinai. Remember when the, the people of Israel were told not to even come near the mountain and there's smoke and fire and there's a thunderous voice from heaven to deal with the Lord apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus, apart from a mediator, It's terrifying. And this is how God responds when the nations and kings and set themselves against King David. He responds with terrifying wrath on the enemies of David. He sends out his arrows, verse 14. He scatters them, lightning. We see channels of the sea are laid bare. This is, again, Exodus language that David's recalling. He's saying, the same way you saved the people of Israel and delivered them, you're delivering me. I can see the barren sea as your breath comes forth and parts the waters and makes a way for me. He says in verse 16, you drew me out of many waters. Do you know the name of Moses? means drawn up out of the water. David is like Moses. He is an anointed one of God, and he has been drawn up, rescued from death, rescued from the waters, rescued from his enemies, verse 17. The ones who have hated him and conspired against him, who've confronted him. But the Lord was his support. And what has happened is God has delivered him by means of his wrath towards his enemies. And he has brought him to a broad place because why? Verse 19 He delights in me. I'm his son, David says, and he is pleased with me. All of this being fulfilled in its most immediate sense in King David, but you're already seeing and thinking of ways that all of this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whom he is well pleased, in whom he delights. So this is where I got to in my study, and I'm breaking things down, and I'm tracking that basically there's a lot of Psalm 2 going on in Psalm 18. But then there's this twist, okay? So the Psalm 18 has this symmetry to it where it begins and ends with praise. Verses 1 through 3, and then the end, 46 through 50, you've got this worship, praise of God. And then kind of the two large sections, 6 through 19, 29 through 42 or so, They're about God's deliverance. 
one that we've just studied by means of God's wrath. God, in his wrath, he delivers David from the enemies who confront him. And then in 29 and following, we're going to study in a moment, God delivers David by strengthening and enabling his way, going before him, making him strong for battle. But then right smack dab in the middle is verses 20 through 28. And there's just a different theme. There's a different painting. There's a different stroke going on. And I think what has happened is David's cleaned the brush and he's gone back to Psalm 1. And he says, you know what? I'm going to paint the middle right here in the very center of this psalm with the theme of the way God watches over the righteous person. The way God oversees the steps of the one who delights in the law of the Lord. So number four in your outlines today says this. The one the Lord delights in, that's the king that we've talked about so far, the one the Lord delights in also delights in the law of the Lord. And as a result, God rewards and oversees his way. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Hold on to that verse 2 of Psalm 1. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For, here's the key, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, that's the backdrop. I think that's the backdrop of what's being said. And see if you don't see these themes as we study Psalm 18. Begin with me in verse 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. What is Psalm 1-3 about, except that God rewards righteous living. He plants the righteous person like a tree by water who yields fruit, and everything he does, he prospers. The Lord rewards those who obey and follow the word of God. See that in verse 21? I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. I'm not going to go stand in the way of sinners. I'm not going to go sit in the seat of mockers and depart from the path of the righteous person. I'm going to follow his rules, his ways. Verse 22, all his rules were before me and all his statutes I did not put away from me. Rules and statutes is another way of saying the law of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. David says, I have studied and hidden the word of God in my heart. I've delighted in the law of the Lord, his rules, his statutes. I was blameless before him and kept myself from guilt. And of course, as we said last week, I say again, he is not claiming sinless perfection 
in these psalms. He is claiming uh, justice in his cause, blamelessness in a general sense of obedience to the word of God and a life of righteousness based on the Lord's deliverance. Remember, he has celebrated the fact the Lord has accomplished this first. And yet he wants to follow after he's seen the Lord bring victory. He follows his paths and he lives by his word. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Verse 25 through uh, 26 I think, fit well with this idea of the Lord watching over the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked perish. There are two ways to go here in Psalm 1, and we see these two different paths in verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 18. There's being merciful, to which God responds with mercy. There's blamelessness, to which God shows himself blameless. There's purity, to which God shows himself pure. But if you're wicked, if if you live a crooked life, the way of God seems torturous to you. The way of the wicked will perish. You can follow after the Lord and his ways and his laws and his word, or you can be disobedient. You will find that God seems like the terrifying, wrath-filled God of verses 6 through 19. He makes his way torturous to the wicked. Verse 27, for you save a humble people. That word humble could also be translated poor or afflicted. I think the idea of the poor in spirit to whom Jesus was preaching on the, uh, the Mount of Olives, or the Beatitudes at least, he's saying, uh, the blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are a humble people, the Lord saves those who know they need him. Like, if you're needy and you know it, clap your hands, you know? It's like, that's how you have to feel. Like, if you feel like you've got this, like I can obey God's rules, and I can do this, I can defeat my foes in my own strength, you will fail. But the humble, the poor in spirit, who recognize their need for God, who call upon him to be the one who delivers and saves them, he rescues and he delights in them. But the haughty, those who do feel they can save themselves in their own strength, he brings down. God is the one who lights his lamp and his darkness. He is over the way of the righteous. So that's kind of how I feel like verses 20 through 28 have this broad sense of backdrop in Psalm 1. There's a a comparison going on, or at least a similarity in themes. Now, as we turn the corner back into God's deliverance by strengthening David, I think David keeps a little bit of Psalm 1-6 on his brush. You know how sometimes you want to mix a color? All right, so you keep a little bit on the brush, and then you go to the next color— I think he keeps a little Psalm 1-6, the Lord watching over the way of the righteous. And then he goes back to Psalm 2 and verse 9, and he mixes the Lord watching over the way of the righteous with Psalm 2 and 9, which says, you will rule them, that is the nations that conspire against you, you will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The Lord's going to watch over your way, and you'll rule them with an iron scepter and dash the nations to pieces like pottery. So, number next, five. The way of the righteous, law-keeping, God-anointed servant king involves fierce battle, smashing success. Smashing in quotes. 
The way of this righteous, law-keeping person of Psalm 1, who is the God-anointed servant king of Psalm 2, involves fierce battle and smashing success. And so, with this backdrop in mind that he will defeat his enemies with smashing victory, dashing them to pieces like pottery, and the Lord watching over his footsteps in his way, let's read and skim through verses 29 through 42 of Psalm 18. By you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. Okay, the way of the Lord. His way is perfect. Skip down to verse 32 and look at what he says at the end of verse 32. The God who equipped me with strength made my way blameless. That word can also be translated perfect. So what David is saying is the way of God is perfect and he has made my way perfect. The Lord watches over the what? The way of the righteous. The perfect God perfects his servant's way. Isn't that good news for us today as we follow God's will and God's way? Now listen, that way might seem like you are on those roads that you don't even want to go near. Like, you ever been to those national parks, and they have those things, and they even have guardrails at some of those places, and you just don't even want to come near the guardrail because there's a precipice below the path. That's what David is picturing somewhat in the way that the Lord has watched over him. He made his feet like the feet of a deer. Like, he has set him secure on the heights. He's thinking of I've been to En Gedi and seen the, the rocky crags and the way that the, the deer and the antelope, they move through the, the little narrow paths, and it's like they look like they're going to fall, but every single step they take is certain and secure. It's as if God has made that very narrow and rocky way a broad path before King David. He strengthened him. He, he's given him uh, hands for war, Strong arms. He's given him a shield. He's supported him. He's made a wide place for his steps. These verses remind me of Paul when he says, Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work his good pleasure. David's arms, I'm sure, got tired. His hands were sore. His feet were tired. He He ran, he hid, he fought with all his might. But when he looks back, he says, he is the one who trained me. He is the one who strengthened me. He is the one who gave me the arms to be able to do this. He says, I was working out my salvation, but it was God at work within me, both to will and work his good pleasure. David sees that God is the one who has equipped him and strengthened him for fierce battle. And smashing success we see in verse 37 through 42. David pursues the enemy, overtakes them, consumes them. He thrusts them through. They're unable to rise. They sink under him. Verse 40, they turn back. Verse 41, they cry for help and there is no answer. And verse 42, he beats them as fine as dust. He smashes them to pieces like pottery. They are completely and utterly destroyed. The battle belong to the Lord, and he has given his anointed servant king complete victory. 
and deliverance. Well, as we turn towards the last several verses, verses 43 through 50, I want us to see sixth and finally that this righteous and law-keeping man of Psalm 1, who is the God-anointed servant king of Psalm 2, receives the nations as an inheritance. He receives the nations as an inheritance. And he invites, invites them to join his song of praise to the living Lord, who is the God who saved and highly exalted him. For his last thematic element, he dips back in a lot more paint from the end of Psalm 2, and he paints this brushstroke. Psalm 2, verses 12 say, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me, here's the key verse, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The servant king of Psalm 2, the anointed one of Israel, is promised the nations as his inheritance. And that's exactly what David receives in verse 43. The Lord has delivered him from the strife with people. He has made him the head of nations, Philistines, Moabites, Edomites. People who he hasn't known, they serve him. As soon as they hear of him, they obey him. Foreigners come cringing before him. Foreigners, they lose heart. They come trembling before him. He praises God. He says, the Lord lives. And blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. He is the God that gave me vengeance and subdued these peoples, these nations under me, these Gentiles. Rescued me from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me and been delivered from the man of violence. And here in verse 49 and 50, we begin to see the key enter the lock and turn to where we open our eyes and wonder, oh, are we talking about David only? For this I will praise you, verse 49, O Lord among the nations, and sing to your name. Now pause there for a moment and understand that that verse is quoted by Paul in Romans 15, verses 18, excuse me, verse 8 and 9. He says, I tell you the truth, Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness and confirm his promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles would praise God for his mercy, as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 18, 49. I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. So, what Paul says is that God has given Christ, as he served the obedient servant, Christ, as he came to earth, he came to fulfill promises made to the Jewish people and in order that Gentiles, like you and me, would glorify God for the mercy given through him and that we would join in his song. He says, I will sing among the nations. Do you see that? 
I will sing to you among the nations, those whom Christ has redeemed, his brothers and sisters who he's leading into glory. He will be our song leader. David was a song leader, wasn't he? The king of Israel. He said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. He was the worship leader of Israel, and Jesus will be the worship leader of his people who will join with him in song, and we will glorify the God of all mercy, the Father who has sent the Son to bring forgiveness and mercy to us, the Gentiles, through the obedient servant of Israel. Verse 50 says, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David knew that the covenant made with him was a covenant that would last forever an eternal covenant that one from David's lineage would sit on the throne and rule the world in righteousness and justice. And we know that that is King Jesus, Messiah Jesus, who, if we look back briefly over these same points, was firstly a servant king. Jesus served the Lord. He obeyed the Father and he submitted himself to the will. He became a servant for our sake to bring mercy to the Gentiles. Secondly, the raging nations, kings, and rulers conspired against him. Did they not? The the book of Acts says that this verse, Peter is saying, this verse, number, uh, verse, uh, Psalm 2, 2, applies specifically to Jesus. That Herod and Pontius Pilate and the elite of Israel, they conspired, they acted wickedly, and they gathered together against the Lord's anointed, Jesus. Number three says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs at, he rebukes, and he wrathfully terrifies the enemies of God's anointed one, Jesus. Jesus is the son in whom God delights, and at the cross, when Jesus forsook sin and death, he he bore the wrath of God. God poured out his wrath on our greatest enemy's sin for us, and God terrified Jesus with wrath and darkness, and he poured out his his wrath on him instead of us that we deserve. We would face verses 6 through 19. I don't want coals of fire. I don't want lightnings and arrows and flashing. I want Jesus to bear the wrath of God for me. And so to that, we say praise God that Jesus is the one who was able to defeat our enemy and the Lord brought down wrath on him instead of us. Number four, the one the Lord delights in, Jesus, is also the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He says, behold, I have come to do your will. Whatever's written of me in the scroll, I'm going to do it. He was obedient to the law of God fully on our behalf, and his obedience is our obedience if we are in Christ. He loved God's law, and he obeyed it fully in his life. Number five, the way of the righteous, law-keeping, God-anointed servant king, Jesus, involved fierce battle, did it not? the fiercest, if you will. Who but Jesus would face Calvary for us? A terrifying cross, torture, betrayal, loss. And yet, God has promised him the nations as an inheritance and a smashing success. We know that he will come again, and he will come riding a white horse, conquering, and the king will rule the world with truth and grace, and he will, he will defeat the nations that have risen up against him. And sixthly, this King Jesus, he does receive the nations as an inheritance, and he invites them to join in his song of praise. We're going to see that in our application, okay? So this all 
can be applied to Jesus as well. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 18. He is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the one who came to be the righteous man, servant king. Now, I sat on my patio, went literally verse by verse through Psalm 18, and meditated on what Psalm 1 and 2 said. I would commend that practice to you for your devotion. See if there's, there's more detail. I've grouped these in broad strokes for our, our digestion today, and I know it's been a lot. But I wanted you to see this connection. However, as I finished this exercise, I said to myself, well, that's really interesting. So what? So what? And I think that's the question that is on me to answer to you. What, what does this mean for you when we leave here today? How do we apply what we have come to understand and know from Scripture about this psalm? I'd say simply I'm going to match each point with a point of application. These are at the bottom of your page. I say, first, serve the Lord with fear. We have four main points of emphasis here. Seek, study, serve, share. Many of you have served very faithfully all week. I continue to encourage you, serve the Lord with reverent awe. Rejoice with trembling in your heart before him. Bow your heart before him and understand that if David, the king of all Israel, would begin his song with, I am a servant of the Lord. If the apostle Paul would begin his letters with, Paul, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. That means not one of us are able to rise up and say, who are we? Look at me. I'm something special. Jesus took the form of a servant. He wrapped a towel around himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Let us remember that we are never too old, too great, too positioned, whatever it might be, to serve Jesus. So serve the Lord. For those of you who are in your later days, I'll let you decide where you want to make that marker. (laughs) I have this question. Could you, like David, look back over your life? Prosperity, perhaps, that God has brought, the successes, the victories, the way he's helped you navigate, and could you say he did it all? If the people around you that knew you best looked at you for words your songs, your actions, and your attitudes, would they say, wow, that is a servant of the Lord? Or would they say, wow, look at him. He is something special. We are never too old to be reminded that we are all servants of Jesus. Martin Luther on his deathbed said, we are beggars. This is true. We come humbly at the foot of the cross. So we serve the Lord with fear. Secondly, don't be surprised when nations including our own kings and the so-called elite in this life oppose Jesus and you. Do not be surprised. All the way back in Psalm 2, the prophecy of the anointed king of Israel, we've known that the anointed one of God would be opposed by nations and kings and rulers And to this day, Jesus is opposed. His ways are not the ways of this world, are they? And we shouldn't be surprised 
Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. A servant, which is what we are, is not greater than his master. So don't be surprised if we face opposition when we follow King Jesus. Number three, you don't want to trifle with Jesus. God's wrath is nothing to mess with. Please hear me very clearly. This language that David uses, yes, it's figurative of how God showed up in battle and delivered him from his enemies, brought him to the kingship. God's wrath is real. And we need to understand and reconcile with the fact that Jesus is the anointed one of God par excellence. He is the offspring of David like none other. And the way that the Lord sits in heaven, he merely laughs when you try to mess with Jesus. If you want to overthrow Christ and Christ's ways, you will meet with the wrath of God. The Bible says if we don't turn to Jesus, John three thirty six, the wrath of God remains on us. And to that I say, there's good news. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus, this very king, came in his mercy to rescue us from our greatest enemy, which is our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve his just punishment. All of us know that we have broken God's laws. Let me ask you this little series of questions. Have you ever told a lie? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) Then you're a liar. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? You're a blasphemer. Have you ever looked lustfully at a woman, a woman, man, or women? Have you looked lustfully at men? Have you committed adultery in your heart, in your mind, in reality, physically? Then you are an adulterer. Have you ever wished you had something that your neighbor had, their boat, their wife, their jet ski, you're a coveter. And for those things, God will judge us. When we stand before the judge, the righteous judge, he will rightly say, guilty. The good news is that Jesus paid the penalty we should pay. He bore the wrath of sin that we deserve to pay. He took the punishment for us. And so if you will repent from your sin, that means to turn away from it and trust Jesus alone. to to turn away from sin and don't want to go back to it. Leave it behind you. And by faith, believe that Jesus died for you, that he paid the penalty you should have paid, and that he rose from the grave to conquer death for you. That is the good news. That is what rescues us from the wrath of God. And that is what reconciles us to God through Christ. So don't, don't play around today. Don't leave here today. None of us are promised tomorrow. Number four, delight in God's law. Delight in God's law. That's what Psalm 1 is about. That's what Psalm 18 and verses 22 and 23 were about, 24. Let's remember to delight in the law of God. You say, well, I was saved by faith apart from works of the law. That is true, Paul says. That's what he wants you to know. You couldn't have done it in your own strength. But Paul also says in Romans 3.31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. We uphold the law. Later, he goes on to say in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy and righteous 
and good. So what happened is our sin took the good law and turned it around against us and said, you're guilty. That that thing I just did with you, you know, those questions, by the way, it's a great way to witness to somebody. Those questions, they, they point back at us, and that good law is death to us, apart from Christ. Well, that's what Paul says, is Christ was the purpose of the law. It was a tutor. It held us in trust, so to speak, until Jesus could come. And then he says in Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ was the purpose of the law for righteousness. He was the end, the goal, the purpose of the law. And so the law has gone from being that weapon pointed to us that says, oh my, I'm guilty, to a a path for us to live by, by grace, through faith in Jesus, who accomplished the law fully for us. And the new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36, 27 is that God would put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. And so for the Christian, if you're a Christian here today, the law is good and holy and right. Delight in the law of the Lord and be obedient to it. Number five, our battle belongs to Jesus. Our battle belongs to Jesus. He fought the fiercest battle for us at Calvary. He paid the greatest penalty for us at Calvary. He defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, for us at Calvary. Now hear this. We go out in victory following his lead. He is our Joshua who has the battle for us in victory. He is our Ehud. I love Ehud. He goes in and he thrusts the sword into Eglon's belly. Remember the Moabite king? And it goes right into his belly because he's so fat. And he defeats the greatest enemy of the Israelites. He's dead. It's like Satan. He's gone, okay? And then he goes out and he says to the Israelites, now come with me to victory and defeat the Moabites with me. I've defeated your greatest enemy. Now follow me to victory. The battle belongs to our anointed servant, King Jesus. He has defeated Satan, but he invites us to defeat sin with him. Defeat sin and death with him. Follow him to victory. Do you see the picture how he goes before us and we mortify sin? Not because when we defeat sin on our own, we're going to defeat our greatest problem. No, he defeated the greatest problem first and then invites us to obey and follow him in victory. The battle belongs to Jesus and we will overcome. I've read the end of the book and we win. John says, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So the battle belongs to the Lord. And then sixth and finally, join the Messiah's song. Join the Messiah's song. David says, I will praise you among the nations. And Jesus is also praising God with the Gentiles joining in his song. Psalm 22 is another messianic psalm. And it says that Jesus will be our song leader. As it looks forward to him, he says, From you, the one who delivers me, comes my praise in the great congregation. Before you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Who are the poor? They're the humble. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he 
rules over the nations. So we join in Messiah's song that we will sing for all of eternity, joined with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is our God, and his way is perfect. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the time that we've had to study and understand the the ways that it ties together, the way that you instruct our hearts by it, that it was a fulfillment, a type of the righteous person and the servant king. But ultimately, this psalm, Psalm 18, reminds us of King Jesus, who will rule the world with justice. Lord, may we join in his song today. May we call out to you for deliverance from all of our enemies. May you make our way perfect as we navigate the challenges and the difficulties of life in opposition to our service, to who you are and what you've commanded us to do. Father, give us strength for battle. Give us feet and and hands for victory. And Lord, may we understand that ultimately the battle belongs to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.